is Asia Insight, Asia Policy in a Pod. Welcome to the Asia Insight podcast by the National Bureau of Asian Research. I'm Tom Lutkin, Project Manager for Energy and Environmental Affairs here at NBR. In this podcast series, we interview top experts to discuss key issues in the Indo-Pacific. Today, as part of our larger NBR program, Achieving Net Zero, Policy Implications for the U.S.-Japan Cooperation, we'll be examining decarbonization efforts in the United States and Japan, rethinking policy approaches to reaching these climate goals. In today's episode, NBR advisor and research fellow at the University of Leeds, Dr. Claire Richardson-Barlow, interviews Dr. Runshin Zhang of Hiroshima University and Dr. Izuru Makihara of the University of Tokyo. Claire, over to you. Hello, I'm Dr. Claire Richardson-Barlow from the University of Leeds and NBR. I specialize in industrial decarbonization and energy transitions with a broad focus on the Indo-Pacific. So it's great today to be joined by Dr. Zhang from Hiroshima University and Dr. Makihara from the University of Tokyo. I'd like to begin today with a focused question and then broaden out a bit as the discussion moves along. Dr. Makihara, this first question is for you. Setting the scene for us, what political trends have you seen in Japan's climate and sustainability agenda? Hello, I am Makihara Izuru uh, from the University of Tokyo in Japan. I have conducted oral history project on the um, green gas emission policy. And so I will speak my own opinion um, from the historical uh, angle. Um, the history of the climate change policy in Japan is characterized by the strong influence of the Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry, METI, rather than the Ministry of the Environment. At the time of the Kyoto Protocol, the Japanese Ministry of International Trade and Industry, METI, the predecessor of METI, as a request of the business community, rejected the environment agency's claims and arranged to reduce Japan's greenhouse gas emissions as much as possible. In the first place, the Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry is a unique ministry compared to those in Europe and the United States in that it not only regulates the business, business community, but also protects individual industries. There is a widespread understanding in East and Southeast Asia that Japan's rapid economic growth in 1960s was based on the activities of the Ministry of International Trade and Industry. Therefore, such ministries are often established in the countries in this region. The Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry played a major role as an organization that proposed a variety of policy ideas at a time of transition in the Japanese economy. The ministry uh, <coughs> was uh, uh, an important policy-making center uh, not only in the 1960s, a period of high econo economic growth, but also in the post-Cold War 1990s and in the 2010s under Prime Minister Abe. Then, I would like to return to the topic at the time of the conclusion of the Kyoto Protocol. The business community then developed a plan to voluntarily determine the amount of greenhouse gas emission reduction autonomous from the government. Tokyo Electric Power Company, TEPCO, had been the active leader in this effort, 
and has been working to formulate a plan that focused on autonomy in order to eliminate the influence of net meeting. In the first energy supply and demand plan formulated in 2003, the METI began to take environment issues into account. When the 2011 Great uh, East Japan earthquake caused a serious nuclear accident, Japan chose to shut down its nuclear power plants rather than reduce greenhouse gas emissions. The target of zero emissions was radiation, not greenhouse gases. With this Fukushima nuclear accident, TEPCO had lost its influence. This meant that the electric power industry, which had long been independent of the national government through regional monopolies, was placed under the regulation of the Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry. Particularly since COP21, the emphasis has been on the fact that investment in the environment brings economic growth, and the Ministry of the Environment had begun to take account the economy economic factor into its policy system. And METI had begun to encourage investment in the environment. So these two ministries uh, had started to understand each other. But there were limits to industry's self-regulation on greenhouse gas reductions. This is because as self-regulation, it did not presuppose a radical restructuring of industry. Prime Minister Suga in 2020 attempted to break through this limit. Until then, the Japanese government's policy decisions had been very firm, declaring future implementation only when concrete measures were in place. But Suga, Prime Minister Suga announced a policy to reduce greenhouse gas emissions to zero by uh, 2050, uh, 2050. The 2020 zero emission declaration, however, was a declaration without such concrete measures. Of course, very few countries can achieve zero emissions at this stage, and Japan can be said to have jumped on the global bandwagon. Nevertheless, there is a cooperative movement towards zero emissions in Japan, as evidenced by Toyota's increased investment in EV development, which had been reluctant to develop EVs until then. Current Prime Minister Kishida had no interest in this issue, but he is sensitive to public opinion and public opinion was to some extent favorable to global warming action. Therefore, he is likely to aim to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in a reasonable manner. And since public opposition, uh, public opinion to new, uh, so, sorry, and since public opposition to nuclear power plant is not as strong as it was in 2011, he is likely to proceed with a restart of nuclear power plants in a moderate manner. Dr. Makihara, thank you so much for your response. Um, that was a great historical look, but I'd also like to note it's so interesting to acknowledge the role of the Ministry of Industry and Trade in Japan in J the evolution of Japan's sustainability agenda. I think we'll definitely come back to that point later on. I'd like to move to Dr. Zhang now. What sectors should we focus on in exploring Japan's decarbonization efforts? And what are the obstacles to sector-specific decarbonization that we should be paying attention to? Thank you. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to share my thoughts on Japan's decarbonization efforts. I'm from Hiroshima University and National Institute for Environmental Studies. 
Uh, I'm mainly engaged in the research regarding urban planning and transport engineering, particularly low carbon transport development. So I would like to talk about the decarbonization of Japan's transport sector. Uh, the transport sector is an important sector in the economy that deals with the movement of people and products. In Japan, the transport sector contributed around uh, 200 million tons to carbon dioxide emissions in 2019, accounting for around 18% of all CO2 emissions. The transport sector must remain an important fact, uh, focus for Japan to meet its ambitious target of carbon neutrality before 2050. Uh, a framework called Avoid, Shift, Improve, ASI, is often used to structure policy measures for low carbon transport development. Avoid refers to the need to improve the efficiency of the transport system through the transit-oriented and compact development of cities. Shift signifies a modal shift from the most energy consuming and polluting transport mode toward more environmentally friendly modes. Improved focuses on uh, vehicle and fuel efficiency improvement. I'm going to introduce the current situation and obstacles to the decarbonization of Japan's transport sector according to this ASI framework. Um, generally speaking, uh, energy policy makers and climate change scientists have highlighted the potential of the improved strategy, such as next generation vehicles, including hybrid, plug-in hybrid, battery electric and fuel cell vehicles. To accelerate transport electrification, Japanese government plans to electrify its new car fleet by the 2030s. And the Japanese automobile industry is also uh, accelerating the shift to environmentally friendly vehicles. Uh, well, although Japan leads the world in the deployment of next generation vehicles, particularly hybrid vehicles, the market share of battery electric vehicles is still relatively low in Japan. Um, the market shares of new hybrid vehicles and battery electric vehicles sold in 2020 were 37% and 0.6% respectively. So we can see the remarkable success of hybrid vehicles, but insufficient penetration of battery electric vehicles in Japanese vehicle market. Uh, well, challenges to the penetration of battery electric vehicles include upfront costs of batteries and lack of charging infrastructure. Um, another problem is, although the battery electric vehicles offer a solution for decarbonizing light duty vehicles, heavier and long distance vehicles are difficult to electrify directly. So for heavy duty vehicles such as trucks and buses, hydrogen powered fuel cell vehicles seem a good option. However, one of the problems with uh, fuel cell vehicles is it requires the infrastructure of hydrogen fueling stations. So for both battery electric vehicles and fuel cell vehicles, a critical challenge now is a modification or replacement of existing infrastructure like gas stations. 
Additionally, for the technological improvement strategy, one important obstacle to transport decarbonization is cross-sectoral trade-offs, particularly between the transport sector and the power sector. Compared to ICE vehicles, electric vehicles do not emit CO2 directly, but they would shift emissions from the transport sector to the power sector if electricity is generated from fossil fuels. The carbon benefits of transport electrification will depend on whether electricity or hydrogen can be derived from non-emitting sources. So this is a technological improvement strategy and challenges for transport decarbonization in Japan. Uh, while the improved strategy has been highlighted by the energy policymakers and climate change scientists, urban planners and transport experts are more concerned about how the avoid strategy and the shift strategy, such as land use regulations, complexity, mass transit development, will help design a low carbon transport system. So for the uh, shift strategy, Japan has uh, an efficient public transport networks, which plays an important role in the decarbonization of the transport sector. The challenge is the public transport system in Japan's rural area and depopulated areas is in decline now due to the shrinking population. And regarding the avoid strategy, on the one hand, uh, compact cities are a precondition for designing an effective low carbon transport system because urban activities need to be located closer together to reduce long distance travel and the usage of private travel modes. On the other hand, um, lifestyle changes such as remote working and online shopping offer a solution for transport decarbonization, particularly uh, the COVID-19 pandemic is changing travel behaviors and lifestyles significantly. Adjusting to the new lifestyles after COVID-19 might create opportunities for the decarbonization of the transport sector. However, the negative effects of lifestyle changes on emission reductions shouldn't be ignored. While the lifestyle changes substantially reduced the travel demand and lowered the consumption of fossil fuels due to remote working, telecommuting, online shopping, and so on. It also shrank public transport and car sharing with increased use of private travel modes, which uh, would adversely affect the decarbonization of transport. In addition, although online shopping may reduce the passenger transport demand and energy consumption, it is likely to increase freight travel to deliver parcels to end consumers. Um, these are Japan's decarbonization efforts and obstacles to the decarbonization of the transport sector. So both opportunities and challenges would depict an uncertain picture of transport decarbonization in the future. So the most important issue I would like to highlight here is the balanced perspective between different strategies and different policy instruments for achieving carbon neutrality. Wonderful, thank you so much. I think it's particularly interesting the note you made about transport and economic development and lifestyles. I think that's such a great point that really crosses the experiences of a number of Indo-Pacific countries. 
but it also highlights a lot of the crossover in this area between the US-Japan experience, which is actually a great lead-in to our next question. This next question is for both of you. How has civil society played a role in shaping Japan's current stance on sustainable development, namely in terms of sectors and accompanying industries? Dr. Makihara, you discussed the role of the Ministry of Industry and Trade in Japan's sustainability history. So why don't we start with you? Yes, so the influence of the NPO sector is still small in Japanese civil society. The Ministry of the Environment has been trying to influence global warming policy with this power, with the power of these NPOs, but with little success. On the other hand, the public also tends to focus on promoting the growth of the Japanese economy, although they support climate change measures themselves. However, a large percentage of the younger generation, so that is to say Generation Z, 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 is strongly concerned about global warming in Japan. A relatively well-established response to global warming is, I think, it's the SDGs, so United Nations, so um, response to the global warming, and environmental education and awareness raising activities targeting the younger generation seem to be effective. So I think the younger generation is strongly concerned about global warming in Japan. And, and then compared to these NPOs and public in general uh, and the younger, younger generation, the industrial sector has been resisted both greenhouse gas reductions. Certainly, Japan has not made significant reduction in carbon dioxide emission from households. From households. So cooperation from industry is the key to uh, um, strong um, greenhouse gas um, emission reduction, I think. Thank you. That was excellent. Dr. John, how would you answer this question? Uh, well, uh, we are likely to overestimate the role of governments as agents of low carbon development while underestimating the importance of civil society in the decarbonization of the transport sector. Actually, uh, civil society would play a crucial role in low carbon innovation in terms of a bridge between the government and the enterprises. Um, although the government's role is to provide uh, enabling environment through supportive policies for decarbonizing the transport sector, it still requires close consultation uh, with business players. Um, it's inevitable for conflict to arise between government and business because each has a different agenda and goals. Um, as a role of business shifts to be more uh, socially and environmentally focused, civil society needs to become more open and more experienced in building relationships with business players. But as an unbiased actor, civil society can play a role in bridging the gap between business and government to build trust. Also, we need to highlight how civil society can advance justice goals while decarbonizing the transport sector by promoting uh, public transport in particular, which often increase opportunities to disadvantaged communities. And more importantly, 
Uh, at the individual level, human behavior is the main driver of low carbon transport innovation. We should recognize that human behavior is at the core of individual mobility decisions. And behavioral factors are vital to enable deep decarbonization and support sustainable, uh, equitable, and resilient trans uh, transitions in the transport sector. Lifestyle and behavioral changes will have profound effects on the decarbonization of Japan's transport sector. Um, new technologies and policies cannot be implemented only by the government and the industry. The government hardly participated in low-carbon innovations such as electric vehicle deployment and public transport promotion without considering the human behavioral aspect. So in this sense, civil society would play a great role in low-carbon innovation, even much greater than the government. Thank you. That was excellent. I think you both touch upon some really important points like justice and the role of both civil society and policy. And I think both of those comments uh, and responses point to the importance of a whole systems approach to decarbonization. And that's something that both Japan and the United States, as well as other countries across the Indo-Pacific are struggling with how to manage. How can we make all aspects of society a part of the solution when all aspects of society contribute to the problems in some way? So thank you for that. Our next question is about more collaboration. I'm curious what you both think about US-Japan collaboration in achieving net zero. What does the role of international collaboration look like and how can our partnership help us in achieving global net zero. Dr. Makihara, let's start with you again. Yes, so I think it would be, it would be extremely effective to promote Japan-US cooperation in addressing global warming. Firstly, technical cooperation between the US and Japan is very important. Active co-investment in the industrial sector to reduce greenhouse gas emissions is surely effective. Industrial competition is important here, but cooperation for technological, technolo technological development is what makes sense. And secondary, cooperation in nuclear power. It is also important to use the existing nuclear power plants as safely as possible for the sake of decarbonization. decarbonization. Japan has originally introduced technology from the U.S. in the nuclear power plant. Close cooperation will be indispensable for future greenhouse effect reductions. Thirdly, as the Trump administration has attempted to withdraw from the COP, decarbonization may cause unnecessary policy conflicts under the polarized U.S. politics. In Japan, where regime change is less likely to occur, policy coherence is stronger, and the framework of Japan-U.S. relations can be used to encourage moderation of U.S. policy shifts so as not to weaken the U.S. policy orientation toward greenhouse gas emissions. Wonderful, thank you. That was great. Dr. Zhang, what about you? How do we, how should we be imagining US-Japan collaboration and what is the role of this collaboration in achieving net zero? Well, uh, compared with Japan's transport sector accounting for around 18% of all CO2 emissions nationwide, the transport sector is the largest contributor to GHG emissions in the United States. Transportation surpassed 
electricity as the largest source of GHG emissions, accounting for around 29% of total GHG emissions in 2019. So decarbonizing the transport sector is also key for the United States to ensuring energy security and combating global climate change. Um, as the ambitious target of carbon neutrality by 2050 has been pledged by the United States and Japanese governments, the United States and Japan are well positioned to lead the global efforts to work toward the deep decarbonization of the transport sector. So firstly, I would like to talk about uh, intergovernmental cooperation. Both the United States and Japanese governments recognize that the development of environmentally friendly technologies, such as uh, battery electric vehicles, uh, fuel cell vehicles, and wider use of clean energy sources are critical for climate change mitigation. And both two countries have developed the policies to promote the research development and commercialization of environmentally friendly vehicle technologies. This is a particularly beneficial area for bilateral cooperation between the United States and Japan. And both two countries should further promote uh, cooperation in the field of low carbon transport development through uh, exchanges of scientists, engineers, and technicians exchange of information and data on research activities, policies and regulations, meetings of transport and energy experts, and implementation of cooperative projects. And importantly, because there is a growing market for next generation vehicles like battery electric vehicles and fuel cell vehicles, both two countries should recognize the importance of strengthening economic and other incentives to uh, encourage private sector research and development of green vehicle technologies. Uh, actually, in addition to the electric vehicles, autonomous vehicles, AV, also could potentially reduce fuel consumption and CO2 emissions by faster speeds, fewer start stops, and reduced congestion. Um, although legal and policy frameworks to support and direct AV development are being discussed now, they are still in the early stages. So US and Japanese companies can find that there exist business opportunities they can better exploit when they work together in partnership. And secondly, uh, given Japan's advancements in sustainable urban planning, it's important to expand US-Japan cooperation in green infrastructure and low carbon transport planning. Uh, the cities should be designed to serve people rather than cars. So US-Japan cooperation can be enhanced to investigate the transport management and urban planning approaches, including uh, land use planning that encourages complexity development, and transit-oriented development, high-speed railway, car sharing, including the sharing of electric vehicles and uh, autonomous vehicles, and the infrastructure policies like uh, uh, protected bike lane network and pedestrian-friendly street design that prioritize walking, cycling over cars and highways. Excellent, thank you. Um, I wonder if I might go off script and ask a follow-up question 
that's relevant to both of you, just noticing that we have a little bit of extra time. Is that all right? So my follow-up question um, really centers on something you both have highlighted multiple times throughout this discussion, and that is the role of trade and the role of industry in achieving net zero. I'm wondering if there is one thing or two things in the US-Japan relationship that we're not doing to achieving decarbonization. And you could use the examples of trade and industry, or maybe there's something else that's missing in that collaboration that we should be looking for. Dr. Makihara, why don't we start with you again? I think the US-Japan relationship is not so for truly speaking, not so effective for gas, zero gas emission because so the U.S. is a very, very, um, it's not so cooperative for the <laughs> zero emission. And, um, and to tell you, Japan also takes such a position. So maybe so um, that is uh, my limit. Yeah. Uh, maybe that's three things uh, only I can... Uh, explain for the future of the relationship, relationship which can promote the zero gas emission. That's excellent. Thank you. Dr. Zhang, let's turn to you. Is there something that we're missing in U.S.-Japan collaboration? Uh, well, I shouldn't say uh, totally 100% missing, but I would like to highlight the uh, cooperation between uh, the United States and the Japan on the transit-oriented planning and the public transport uh, promotion. Uh, I, I shouldn't say it will be 100 uh, perfect for the United States because uh, I think the uh, United States is a car-oriented, car-centered society. So uh, the economic, social, economic, and environment situations are totally different from uh, those in Japan. But uh, I think if we can have more cooperative projects uh, in this area, it will be better. For example, in Japan, uh, now we proposed, like, uh, uh, let's take the complexity as an example. Uh, we proposed a, uh, a location system, uh, optimization location planning system. So we established this system to promote the formation of complexities uh, nationwide in Japan. So in this system, the local government formulates a location optimization plan and uh, establishes a residential guidance area where housing is concentrated and the urban function guidance area where stores uh, where uh, welfare facilities are con concentrated, thereby cre creating an efficient, uh, efficient city. So in this area, like the TOD, public transport, and compact city, low carbon city, I think uh, we should uh, enhance U.S.-Japan cooperation uh, in this area. Excellent, thank you. I am wondering if there is another Japanese collaborative relationship that we should also be paying attention to? Is there another partner that is very important, not just to Japan's own decarbonization efforts, but global net zero? We've talked about US Japan. Who else is there that we should be paying attention to in this space? Dr. Makihara, can we start with you? 
So I think so. <laughs> U.S. should uh, return to the COP, and I think Japan uh, will uh, contribute its position to the reduction policy in the uh, scheme of the United Nations, especially COP. Uh, so um, maybe in the developed, uh, other <coughs> members of the developed countries, uh, Japan has cooperated with the uh, with the countries uh, which uh, <coughs> emit which emit so 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 much amount of the uh, greenhouse gas. So I think so the United Nations is very important for the Japan to cooperate with other nations, not so. Uh, bilateral relationship, but also the so multilateral relationships on the international organization, I think. Excellent. Thank you. That's a great point. The multilateral relationship is as important as any bilateral cooperation. Dr. Zhang, what do you think? Can I turn over to you? Uh, well, I think the developing countries should be uh, you know, uh, welcome. Mm, into the U.S.-Japan cooperation, because as developed economies, the United States and Japan are supposed to play a leading role to reduce emissions from the transport sector without hindering economic progress, which would be a good example, I guess, for other developing countries. Uh, in view of the importance of developing green transport technologies and solutions, such as electric vehicles, fuel vehicles and autonomous vehicles as an investment in the future economic growth. Uh, the partnerships in which the United States, Japan and other developing countries collaborate for carbon neutral transport need to uh, target promoting economic development and uh, the economic growth in both developed countries represented by the United States and Japan and other developing countries. Excellent. Thank you both so much. I think this is a great place to stop. I have learned a lot from both of you, including about Japan's sustainability policies domestically, the role of transport, and also the importance of both bilateral and multilateral cooperation. So thank you for sharing. I think to sort of wrap this up, your responses are quite pragmatic. There is both opportunity and there are also barriers. So I am wondering, as some final words to take us out, should we be optimistic? Is there anything else that you would like to add to this conversation um, to kind of close this out and, and leave us with a few really important key words? Dr. Makihara, let's go to you for the last time. Yes. Yeah, so. I think so. The green gas, uh, <clears throat> the reduction of the green gas emission is a very, very important global topic, and so Japan and the U.S. can uh, <clears throat> dedicate uh, to this uh, sublime policy targets. I think so. The power of civil society is, is, uh, will be uh, much more important for this area, not. Uh, only uh, the, the the power or, or influence of the government. So I think so. Uh, Japan should um, nurture the power of the NPO, um, environmental NPO, in the um, in the in this domestic area to from to in the international 
um, Sophia, I think. Great, thanks a lot. Dr. Zhang? Uh, many policy initiatives that support technological innovations and social transformation in the transport sector have been launched toward the goal of carbon neutrality. But it's unwise to become over-optimistic and believe that a carbon-neutral transport sector will be easily realized over the coming decades. However, the uncertainty and instability of policy effectiveness, as well as the trade-offs and interactions between different policies and different sectors need to be considered when proposing strategies for developing carbon-neutral transport. In particular, uh, although the improved strategies such as electric vehicles and fuel cell vehicles having substantial positive effects on emission reductions, it's highly technology dependent and uh, constrained to the national or regional technical development levels. The technological transformation represented by uh, environmentally friendly vehicles is long-term and will require considerable uh, economic costs, investment costs. In this sense, transport management and urban planning approaches are effective supplementary policy tools. So the uh, most important point I would like to highlight here is a balanced perspective integrating uh, both behavioral transformations and technology advances can mitigate the risks and uncertainties involved in policy implementation. Therefore, uh, I think a comprehensive policy package integrating uh, void, shift, and improved strategies is required to achieve the goal of net zero emissions. Excellent, thank you. That was a great way to close out. Dr. Makihara, Dr. Zhang, thank you so much for sharing with us today. I think you've both noted some really important points about whole systems approaches and the balance that we need to see in both Japan and US policy, as well as in our future collaboration. I think this is a great place to end. Um, everyone, please look out for their research. It's very interesting and informative. I am definitely a fan now, and I will be using both of you in all of my future references. So thank you for this opportunity. Thank you so much. And I think that today's discussion is very, very interesting, and in, especially for the future of Japan and the U.S. and other uh, countries in this global world. world. Uh, thank you very much for yeah giving me the opportunity yeah of sharing the ideas and thoughts on Japan's transport sector and I enjoyed a lot the discussions and the uh, questions so thank you very much. On behalf of NBR, thank you once again to all of our speakers for your excellent insights. This podcast is part of NBR's project with the Japanese Consulate in Seattle and is funded through the Japanese Ministry of Foreign Affairs. For our listeners, you can find even more analysis from this project and all our other climate and environmental programming on our website at nbr.org. Until next time, this has been Asia Insight. Asia Insight podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Thank you for listening to this episode of Asia Insight.